Hello, my dream boats. Hello, everybody, and welcome to In the Company of Trees. My name is Tobin Mitnick, and I am a Jew who loves trees. Today is my solo pod, because, of course, it is Thursday. Um, and today we're doing an edition of This Week in Trees. This Week in Trees for the week of October... What the hell is it this week? October 16th. 2023. So today I'm excited because I'm going to give you three news stories about trees, and I'm going to kind of talk about how they relate to me personally, but also how they connect to the world at large. I don't want this to be too navel-gazy, although we know that it's always a lot of fun when it is. Anyway, I love this segment because it's timely, but it's also insane, and it lets me indulge some of my my other hobbies, you know, presidential trivia, some some movie stuff in there, radioactivity, you know, the like, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, it's always being shown that trees are important for various reasons that we might not think about, so I think this is my bid to help us all be more attuned to that. Anyway, you can find my references in the pod notes, as well as a link to buy Must Love Trees, an Unconventional Guide, which is my book, which I quote, not at length, I would say, but I do. I do quote it in this episode. Okay, let's get to it. This week in trees. Okay, tree prayer. Let's do it. In the company of trees, I feel whole. In the company of trees, I feel home. With trees, I am tinglier. With trees, I am minglier. I raise my cup of water and pour it at your roots so you can drink your health all the way out through your shoots. May you grow your fill and help me to grow mine. Thank you, trees. This week in trees, the week of October 16th, 2023. Wow. Item the first on our agenda today, the sycamore gap tree vandal remains at large. Okay, let me give you a brief history of this item. Two weeks ago, about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, actually, maybe even three and a half weeks ago by the time this episode comes out, it doesn't matter. A person went to a tree nicknamed the sycamore gap tree uh, or the Robin Hood tree for reasons that will become clear in the coming minutes and chop that tree down. This tree is located in Northumbria in the UK. And of course, this tree was made famous by Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the 1991 film starring Kevin Costner. Uh, There is a very, very important scene where Kevin is hanging out with Morgan. And of course, by Morgan, I mean Morgan Freeman playing Azim, wonderful character. And uh, they are fighting to get a little boy out of this beautiful tree located between these two hills in, uh, in rural England, because, of course, the sheriff's cousin is pursuing this boy because this boy killed one of the sheriff of Nottingham's deer. Very bad. And he's got some, some goons with him, some oafs. And Robin Hood just thwacks these guys, really just uh, takes them all down one by one. Azim doesn't do anything at that particular moment because he's praying because he's Muslim. So um, then Robin uh, kind of like yells at him afterward, like, why didn't you help me out? And Azim is like, you're a baby. It's one of the best scenes in, in cinematic history. Critics don't feel that way. Critics feel it's a little bit more hilarious. They're wrong. I'm right. Back to the tree. So that's what really made this particular tree world famous. It was famous in its community beforehand because it is so beautiful and idyllic. The sycamore maple is a, in, in the UK, it's known as a sycamore, but here we would call it a sycamore maple. It's Acer pseudoplatanus, which means a maple that kind of looks like a sycamore tree. It was estimated to be about two to 300 years old, planted in the early 1800s, and it just describes the, the wilderness of Northumbria so, so well in its, in its presentation or its, its previous presentation, or at least that's what I would say if I had ever been to Northumbria and had the pleasures of looking upon its local flora. 
It sits right along Hadrian's Wall, which, of course, I keep talking about it in the present tense. Uh, woe is me. It sat right along Hadrian's Wall, the northern border of what was the Roman Empire, another thing lost to history. And it was cut down in the middle of the night about two weeks ago, like I said, with a large chainsaw. A lot of people say that the cuts look professional. So on that point, people have been trying to cast blame for it. A couple people were arrested and released, so I'm obviously not going to comment on that. But right now, what they're doing is they're, they're chopping it up. They have to chop it up into sections in order to haul it away. And they're trying to figure out what to do with this now famous tree. And in my mind, this tree, the Sycamore Gap tree, the Robin Hood tree, is now joining other trees that have fallen that have also become famous in contemporary cinema. And most of those trees have found second lives as tree relics, most notably the Shawshank tree, the Shawshank tree, the Shawshank Redemption tree, which Andy, of course, um, plants that little Titanic box under under that piece of obsidian. A lot of mixes of, of strange scientific interests here. It's one of the reasons I love that scene, because Andy is such a freaking nerd. Um, anyway, it came to symbolize hope, of course, how trees usually do in movies. And that was a white oak, and it died kind of between 2011, I believe, which is when it was struck by lightning, and then when the when the last remnants of it were finally taken down because it was dangerous in 2017. But that tree has found an incredible second life as a relic all over the United States. I myself have a wonderful pen made from the wood of that tree. And the question is, like, can we save the sycamore gap tree? Well, it is, it is, quite, it is quite stumpish, if you want to take a look at it now. It is, it is really just a stump. So any kind of botanical, surgical reattachment is quite out of the question. It will re-sprout. That is what most trees do. So we will see new sprouts grow out of that stump, which will be lovely. And, you know, we could uh, we could coppice them, making them into kind of Polish, not Polish the country, but Polish as in pole-like structures. So those would be multiple thin trunks. So we could make it kind of a mini forest on top of the stump, which I think would be kind of cool. Anyway, so could it be saved? Sure, but it will not be saved in the form we know it to be at least not for another for many, 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 many years until it could grow back that way. So R.I.P. Sycamore Gap Tree, Robin Hood Tree. Great movie. And, you know, a lot of folks are making a big fuss out of this. You know, it's just a tree. And I have to say that is a really great whataboutism. I really do give those people credit. Yeah, it, it is just a tree. And also the other whataboutism here is, well, you know, 30 or 40 million trees like it are cut down every day in the service of like capitalism and consumerism. And, and I'm like, yes, you're also correct. That is another really great whataboutism. Um, you know, most of those trees are considerably younger than the sycamore gap tree, though some of them are as old. Some of them are two to three hundred years old. Those shouldn't be cut down, but they are. And, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, those are much more valuable to the ecosystem in which they reside. You know, like the carbon sinks of the boreal forests in Canada or in Russia. And they provide mycorrhizal connections under the soil. I mean, you could go on and on and on. And also Acer pseudoplatinus, which is the, the sycamore maple, is also considered invasive in parts of the UK. It displaces native species. So in some ways, you know, this tree, the sycamore gap tree, the one that we just lost, is actually less valuable than many other trees. And by many, I mean 30 to 40 million trees that are cut down every day that are mostly anonymous. But we have to be honest with ourselves, implicitly valuable does not equal important for people, and it never has. So that's why I don't buy those arguments. They seem sanitized and rhetoric-y. This is a more important tree than other trees, and let me tell you why. And look, I know it has a very silly origin story. I know that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is a much maligned movie. I know that's a very, very, very silly movie. I know that Kevin Costner 
goes about 21% with his accent, and that is like a historical example of a strange actor's choice. And I am the king of strange actor's choices. Trust me, I can show you some of the the B-roll from my like 11th grade production of Blythe Spirit. I am really going for it. But think about it. In Hollywood, lots of things have very silly origin stories that we never really talk about. I mean, think about Charlize Theron. First movie, Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. Again, I like that movie, but critics do not. But also, are we really going to judge the perceived value of a tree on the critical success of the movie in which it appeared? Like, what if the Shawshank tree was cut down intentionally by somebody? What if the Southern Live Oak tree, that famous tree from Forrest Gump, was cut down by some monster? Those are trees in some critically acclaimed movies. I can't get into it with the Forrest Gump naysayers right now, guys. More critically acclaimed, at least, than Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Anyway, are those more legitimate trees? Are those more valuable trees because they have appeared in beautiful properties? Are they? I would argue that a tree's importance not be based on the quality of its cinematic origins. Anyway, since Robin Hood, the, the Sycamore Gap tree, beautiful, wonderful tree, became important to a lot of people. It became important to photographers and newlyweds and vacationers and all of the people whose ashes are spread across its roots, you know, the local Northumbrians. Many of them have, you know, they've described the tree's loss as heartbreaking and traumatizing. We have to take them at their word. It's important stuff. So much of a local identity becomes transposed upon a particular landmark or an object or a point of pride. And a point of natural pride is in some ways so much more powerful than something man-made. So, you know, Robin Hood may have may have started this tree's international fame, sure, but since then it's acquired a life of its own. Much as an artist's work grows apart from an artist's intentions when it enters the world, it takes on a life of its own. Holy is a, is a term I like to apply to certain trees, and holy, I feel as though, is when they, they become a repository for thoughts and feelings and, and memories for thousands of people, sometimes millions of people. There are many trees in our culture that have attained the level of holy, that aren't really that important at all. You know, if the lone cypress disappeared tomorrow, if it finally fell into the ocean from that cliff that it stands on, I think I think the cliff would breathe a sigh of relief, but it would probably make a lot of people sad. Good example right there. Anyway, now I think that this tree, the Sycamore Gap tree, now I think it joins trees like the Anne Frank tree, which uh, toppled over in 2010. And that was the tree, that was the only tree that Anne Frank could see out of her window was a white horse chestnut tree in Amsterdam. But it became holy for, for how many thoughts I think were poured into this embodiment of nature for this confined young person. Um, just an incredibly psychically rich tree, a holy tree. And yeah, people cut down valuable trees every day. But God damn it, who would cut down a holy tree? Item two on this week of trees. Well, 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 well. Looks as though the White House has finally selected its Christmas tree. Okay, the White House and Christmas trees. Want to know a little bit about it? Sure. Let's do it. Let's give you a little primer. The White House likes to put its Christmas tree in this room called the Blue Room. I don't know anything about that room except that they put the Christmas tree in it, and they've been doing it for somewhere around 150 years. There's a little bit of a debate for for uh, who did it first, but it appears as though there is no debate for who cared about it the least, because out of the four years where they forgot to put a Christmas tree in the blue room. I don't know how you forget that. Apparently they remembered like all the big war years, but they just forgot some other years. Out of four years where they forgot to do that, Teddy Roosevelt is responsible for three of these. I have my theories as to why this is, because I think I think when you're drinking a gallon of coffee a day and you spend 95% of your time self-mythologizing, I just don't think that leaves a lot of time for, for Christmas trees. Teddy Roosevelt, trust busting, hating trees. So 
this tree that they usually have in the White House, it usually comes from farms on the East Coast, you know, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, two of the prominent states that it comes from. And it looks as though if I go down, if I do a rundown of the history of the species of this tree, it kind of looks like balsam fir was really in in the 60s. Then things get a little funky in the 70s, you know, a pop some spruces and blue spruces, even a white spruce, ooh, even a noble fir. I mean, it was far out in the 70s. Then there's this kind of interesting conservative run of Douglas firs in the early 80s, you know, Morning in America. Then, you know, it's kind of all over the place into entropy with, you know, Fraser fir, Douglas fir, and balsam fir since then. You know, personally, I love a concolor fir, which is also known as a white fir. Abies concolor, beautiful scent of the needles when they're being crushed. Smells exactly like the candies that we used to eat after Hebrew school. Lemon lime candies, delicious. They also have listed the first lady who is attending the tree. I'm not, I don't know how much input like Jill Biden has into the White House Christmas tree. I don't really care. Anyway, but I will reference them when I need to for comedic effect. Oh yes, also I wanted to mention in 1889 there is a a mention of a foxtail hemlock which I don't. That must be some sort of common name, like obsolete common name for a for a hemlock. But anyway, Benjamin Harrison's wife Caroline put it in there, and uh, I love that because it's super droopy, you know, on the ends, like hemlocks are wont to be. It's extremely Dr. Seuss of them. It's a very old timey Christmas tree. I can just imagine the wax dripping and starting little fires under the dried out needles that they forgot to provide with water because people were dumb. No. Yes. A little bit. Anyway, let's get to it. Who's the lucky species this year? Any guesses out there? Any guesses? Because it's a Fraser fir. That's right. The dreamy folks over at Church Klein Farms in North Carolina won the votes of their peers, and the White House beeps came down there and they said, This is who we're taking back to DC with us a 19 foot Fraser fir. Now, Fraser fir, I think, is very, very interesting. It is, of course, native to North Carolina and it's endangered now, which is quite sad, but it replaced as the state tree, it replaced the hilariously vague pine tree, (laughs) which was the mascot up until 2005. I love that. Everybody else is getting extremely particular, like with what grows in their state. South Carolina is going palmetto. Pennsylvania is going hemlock. North Carolina, how about you? Pine tree. Love that. Now, okay, look, if I were to evaluate this choice, my personal thoughts on the Fraser, I like a Fraser just fine. I like the TV show way back when. I hear the new incarnation is not so great. And I kind of have similar feelings about the tree. It's not the most interesting pick, I like picks with a story. You know, I like interesting picks. Like, what would it look like if a contemporary White House had a blue spruce, which it hasn't had for like 30 years? I think since 96. It was done many times before that. Just ask Pat Nixon or Lady Bird Johnson. You know, they live for that shit. They love putting up blue spruces. And then what happened? Hillary Clinton picked it one time and now nobody will do it anymore. Nobody will touch it. Jesus, guys. And also, I have to talk about one particular year, 1978. Jimmy Carter's in there. Rosalind Carter's in there. What did they pick that year? A vache fur, something I had never heard of. V-E-I-T-C-H. It is a Japanese fur. Rosalind Carter. Wild. You might say, come on, buy American, Rosalind. Come on. But you know what I say? Inspired pick. I would kill to see a vache fur. If somebody comes up to me and is like, by the way, do you know that that's a vache fur? What I would say right back to them is, why am I in the White House right now? Okay, sorry, back to my outline. Yes, Frasier. I think it's fine. Okay, and and this is what I say about the Fraser fir and Must Love Trees and Unconventional Guide, my book. I rank it as the fifth best Christmas tree. And, you know, you maybe have about eight choices, so it, it's somewhere in the middle. I say super short, toddler-friendly needles adorn every sturdy branch of the Fraser, making it a popular holiday tree for the folks who are looking for an intersection of convenience and aesthetic pleasure. Wow, I sound enthused there. I'm being facetious. I don't sound enthused there because I was kind of looking for reasons to to give it like, you know, two and a half stars out of four. Okay, now 
let me eat crow for just a little bit, because I did mention it's endangered. And the Fraser fur, Abies Fraseri, look, I understand it's under threat because of this woolly adelgid situation. That's a bad bug, and it eats Fraser furs, and we don't like that. And like most of its native range has been wiped out in North Carolina, like 80%, I think I saw. And because of that, I think it gets a lot of pity representation in American households. That's what I think. So what would I do if I ran the White House is I would get a nice tree. I would get a really awesome tree because Christmas, you know, this is a holiday I celebrate mostly for its botanical nature because everybody knows I'm a Passover head, right? What with my religion and all, my advertised religion and my handle. I think Christmas should be balls to the wall every year. And if I was the White House guy who picks out the White House trees, I, I would pick the tree that would unite America. Blue states, red states, yes, even the bastard amber states. And that tree is... <laughs> nice try. I'm not going to tell you what that tree is. I never give away my... Okay, it's Douglas fir. Don't at me. It's a great tree. <music> Item the third on this week in trees. Whoa. We used dendrochronology to find out that there was a massive solar flare 14,000 years ago. Okay, okay, let's back up. Yes, dendrochronology. Large word. What does it mean? It means dating the world with tree rings. I don't mean dating them as in what's your number. I mean dating it as in finding out how old stuff is, finding out climactic anomalies. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, I was, uh, previous to seeing this article, today is when I saw this article, I was familiar with a roughly 10,000-year history that we had amassed, that climate scientists had amassed from uh, a collection of salvaged bristlecone pine wood, you know, pieces of wood that they would find in the ravines of the bristlecone pine forest, bristlecone pines, which, of course, have been known to grow up to 5,000 years old. Um, and these pieces of wood, these salvaged pieces of wood, happened to be from trees that had been dead for 5,000 years. You know, these chunks of wood had already been laying around dead for 5,000 years. And on top of that, they were born like 5,000 years before that. So in the end, by matching up all these tree rings, because weather is steady in a given area, they could find out that there were 10,000 consecutive tree rings for which they had a continuous record. I think that's pretty cool. And then I read this article and I was like, oh, this was just carbon-14 dating. And look, it's not just carbon-14 dating. Carbon-14 dating is one of the coolest things in the history of science. Carbon-14 dating, also, of course, known as radiocarbon dating, that's when you measure the decomposition of radioactive carbon, which all living things have. And in trees, only the outside ring, the outside growth ring, the one that's currently being amassed, is the one that's um, amassing that particular carbon isotope, carbon-14, which is the one that breaks down. So the trees toward the middle will have progressively less carbon because those will have broken down more carbon-14 in the intervening years of the tree's growth. What I thought was happening was that these scientists were taking extremely old pieces of wood and they were matching up the rings, you know, in given areas of salvaged wood and providing older and older timelines with, you know, each match that they found. But that was not the case. So instead, they were using carbon-14. They were measuring the amount of it in each particular ring of this somewhat fossilized piece of wood that they found buried in like the French Alps. Pretty cool. And I say somewhat fossilized because the mineralization process had started, but by no means completed. It starts, I believe, around 10,000 years is when things start to fossilize. Um, whatever. It's still pretty bitchin'. Two different bitchin' ways of measuring age. Oh, side note, side note. So the continuous tree ring 10,000-year uh, time map that we have essentially from the bristlecone pines, that was used to calibrate the dating accuracy of carbon-14 
uh, because we knew particular tree rings represented a particular year for sure. And then we compared those rings to what the estimates for the radiocarbon dating were. I mean, that's pretty cool stuff used to calibrate radiocarbon dating, bristlecone pines, hell yeah. Anyway, you got your 14,000-year-old piece of partially fossilized wood, and it tells you that a ginormous solar flare, which emitted a ton of carbon-14 into the atmosphere, happened like 14,300 years ago. And then you go up north, and you buy yourself a couple of polar ice cores, and you compare the amount of beryllium-10 in them, which is another radioactive isotope, which also spikes during a solar flare, and there you have your second point of confirmation. Booyah, science. Thank you very much, Trees, for telling us that an absolutely epoch-making solar flare happened 14,003 years ago. Let's just hope we don't get one of those now because that would uh, suck. Well, folks, this has been This Week in Tree for the week of Monday, October 16th, and I hope you have a pleasant tree morrow. Oh, God. <laughs>